Welcome everyone to episode 68 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you have joined us. I hope all our listeners are doing well and staying safe and healthy amid this COVID pandemic. Just the other day, Joy and my younger daughter Caroline were joking that my life has not changed a whole lot since the quarantine began. And they are partly right. Semester at Messiah College is now over. And I'm not sure my summer will be much different this year, except for a few canceled speaking engagements and no summer vacation. I'm hoping to get a lot of writing done on my book on the American Revolution in New Jersey. So we will see if that hope uh, actually becomes a reality. The FIA household continues to take seriously the call to social distance. I have a couch in my garage where I spend about an hour or two a day, open the garage door, weather permitting, and like to read out there, wave to my neighbors as they walk by. Just the other day, and again, I should say we're recording this on May 21st, 2020. Just the other day, I went to my Messiah College office for the first time since March 13th. And that was my last day of face-to-face teaching before we actually went online. I didn't really need anything, but when the college administration gave faculty the opportunity to get on campus for a two-hour slot, I just felt compelled to sign up. I wanted to get out of the house and reconnect with my workplace. I brought a box with me. I filled it with some books. I wanted to read a few pieces of mail, a few notes, some file folders. Uh, And really, I'm not sure when the next time I will be back. We're still waiting to hear about uh, what the fall looks like at Messiah College. I have noticed that this pandemic has revealed a lot about human nature. In some cases, at least on social media, it has lifted the veil that once partially hit our deepest convictions about politics, religious faith, the meaning of liberty and community and citizenship. I've been surprised, disappointed, and inspired by what I have seen and by what I have read. So I want to thank everyone who has continued to support the podcast during our brief quarantine furlough. But we are back now. We are actually back the last episode. And for the first time ever, we hope to produce episodes through the summer. So this is going to be new for us. The Messiah College studio is closed and still closed. So for the immediate future, we will be doing these episodes via Zoom from my basement bunker. Casey, our studio producer, and the one you hear at the end of the episode, she's moved to Nashville and is editing each episode from there. So stay tuned. We are lining up some great guests. Casey tells me that doesn't sound too bad here on Zoom, but you know you can be the judge of that yourself. If you do notice a dip in the quality, we apologize for that. Just realize we are dealing like everybody else with COVID-19 conditions. As many of you know, the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, Gretchen Adams, and Bob Beatty. And as always, thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right fit for your future. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, whether it be here at the podcast or even on the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, 
please head over to the blog, thewayofimprovement.com and click support. Or you can go directly to our Patreon page and that is located at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash the way of improvement. Of course, the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter, and you can follow us on Facebook as well. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the podcast, we're going to explore the history of a venerable American institution, the presidential cabinet. I think the cabinet is an underappreciated window into American political history. The study of this group of presidential advisors almost never shapes the political narratives we tell in our history classes, but indeed it is ever present in our lectures and our lessons. We are often talking about it. Recently, the success of the Broadway show Hamilton has reminded us that the members of George Washington's first cabinet were constantly at each other's throats over ideological and policy differences. Two of the most popular songs on the soundtrack are Cabinet Battle One and Cabinet Battle Two. Are you ready for a cabinet meeting? Huh? The issue on the table. Secretary Hamilton's plan to assume state debt and establish a national bank. Secretary Jefferson, you have the floor, sir. In which Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson engage in a rap showdown over the assumption of state's debts and whether the U.S. should get involved in the 1790s war between England and France. The issue on the table. France is on the verge of war with England. Now, do we provide aid and troops to our French allies, or do we stay out of it? Remember, my decision on this matter is not subject to congressional approval. The only person you have to convince is me. Secretary Jefferson, you have the floor, sir. Only Lin-Manuel Miranda can make this stuff interesting to a broad audience. Many of us also gesture in our lectures to Andrew Jackson's so-called kitchen cabinet. This was that unofficial group of advisors who he consulted above and beyond his official cabinet, which some have called the parlor cabinet. Teddy Roosevelt is said to have consulted a similar group of unofficial advisors on the White House tennis court, often described as his tennis cabinet. John F. Kennedy, Gerald Ford, and Ronald Reagan had their own kitchen cabinets, groups of trusted friends to whom they turned in times of crisis. During the Great Depression, during the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a traditional cabinet, but he also had his so-called brain trust, a group of intellectuals and experts who helped him construct the New Deal. Abraham Lincoln's cabinet was made up of, to borrow a phrase from historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, a team of rivals. William Seward, Sam and Chase, and Edward Bates all competed with Lincoln for the GOP presidential nomination in 1860. But when it was time to select the Secretary of State, a Secretary of the Treasury, and an Attorney General, Lincoln put aside political differences and chose Seward, Chase, and Bates because they were the best men available. And as Goodwin notes, America needed the best men available in a time of civil war. 
not all presidents got along with their cabinets or saw regular cabinet meetings as useful. Kennedy wondered, for example, why the postmaster general should be required to sit in meetings and listen to discussions of problems in Laos. Richard Nixon told his national security, screw the cabinet. I'm sick of the whole bunch. He was mad because not enough cabinet members called him to praise a nationally televised address he delivered on the Vietnam War. Presidents Ulysses S. Grant and Warren G. Harding were embarrassed by scandals in their cabinets. For Grant, it was the whiskey ring scandal. And for Harding, it was the teapot dome. Look them up. Unless you think Donald Trump's obsession with loyalty is something unprecedented, Let's remember that in 1979, in the midst of an economic recession and in the wake of his famous malaise speech to the nation, Jimmy Carter dumped his Secretary of Treasury, Attorney General, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Secretary of Transportation, and Secretary of Energy, all in the span of two days. Today, we're going to explore the history of the first cabinet with our guest, Lindsay Chervinsky. I first met Lindsay when we were both pursuing a residential fellowship at the Fred W. Smith Library for the study of George Washington in Mount Vernon, Virginia. Our fellowships overlapped for about a month, and we always had a lot of good conversations about the nature of the profession, her career as a budding presidential historian, and the intricacies of writing history for a public audience. I have no doubt that you will be seeing Lindsay as a regular on CNN or MSNBC soon. So I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Lindsay Chervinsky is a historian of early America, the presidency, and the government. She received her PhD in early American history from the University of California, Davis, and has won fellowships from the International Center for Jefferson Studies, the Society of Cincinnati, the Organization of American Historians, and the Fred W. Smith Library for the Study of George Washington. She is currently a historian at the White House Historical Association in Washington, D.C., and before arriving at this post, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Our conversation today will revolve around Chervinsky's book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, published in 2020 with Harvard University Press. Our guest today on the podcast is Lindsay Chervinsky. She is the author of a brand new book called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Lindsay, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. I'm thrilled to be here. We are thrilled to have you. Let's begin a little bit um, with, this is your first book. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with you or your work. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the White House Historical Association. What do you do there? What is this uh, association? Uh, what does your everyday life look like when you're not uh, writing books? 
Absolutely. So the White House Historical Association is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, which means I do not work in the White House. <laughs> um, and uh, our job is to preserve and share the history of all of the people that have lived and worked and built the White House. And so that means we have a couple of different sort of aspects of that mission. One is helping the White House curators preserve the incredible historic items and art that are on the state floor of the White House. So the famous blue room, red room, those kinds of rooms that people probably are familiar with. And then the other part is the education component. Um, and that's where I come in. And so um, my colleagues and I write books, write articles, talk to reporters, share um, things on different forms of media, work with teachers and education groups to really share this robust history and the role of the White House as sometimes a complicated symbol of the nation. Now, do you, um, is, is the White House Historical Association, I've never been there. Is, do you have a building? I mean, is, are you near the White House? I mean... Yeah, we're close. We're right across the street. So we oh. actually are the stewards of the Decatur House, which is on the corner of Lafayette Square, which is a really cool historic building that has its fascinating history in its own right. Um, it was built by Stephen Decatur, who was a Naval War hero. So that's where our offices are. And um, day to day when when I'm there and not home under quarantine, um, you know, there's a lot of writing, but a lot of speaking and a lot of media activities and working with various different groups. So usually no day looks the same as the one before. Yeah, that's great. And, and is there, is, is that a place where people can visit or is it just sort of offices? Is there a museum? Is there a, a displays or is it just, uh, you know, a bunch of historians kind of working yeah, we do have, um, because it is a historic home, and actually one of the things that we really like to emphasize is that it has one of the only remaining um, slave quarters that are uh, within, at least within sight of the White House, if not in D.C. And so um, in normal times, we are open for tours on Mondays, but there is also a really fantastic virtual tour of the slave quarters and some history about that space, which you can see if you go to our website, which is whitehousehistory.org slash SPN slash introduction. And that will take you to our Slavery in the President's Neighborhood initiative, which has all of that information. Very good. Very good. So it's the White House Historical Association. For those of you who are looking for a place to go once you get out of quarantine and you want to tour um, Washington, D.C. So you've written a book about the first cabinet. Um, most young historians, especially American historians I, I talk to uh, writing their first book, usually don't write about this kind of political history. <laughs> right? um, how'd you get interested in the cabinet? What made you decide to, to write about uh, the cabinet for your first book? Yeah, you're right. I mean, most people are not um, writing about sort of high politics these right. days. And um, I guess I was just really stubborn. It was what I wanted to do. And, yeah. and my advisor, to his credit, did not uh, say no, although I was warned that maybe job hiring would be a little bit trickier if, you know, I continued in that pursuit. Um, but I've just always really been fascinated by how individuals can influence events and shape outcomes and policy. And 
it strikes me that at the you know very creation of the federal government in in 1789 perhaps that was the moment when people had the most power to really influence what the government was going to look like because it was brand new and there were so few people in office so i was just always really fascinated by that generation and sort of the incredible transformation that their lives underwent during that time and so when I started trying to, you know, figure out exactly what I was going to write about, not just the decade, um, my advisor encouraged me to go read about the cabinet and I actually couldn't find anything. So there's extraordinary literature, of course, on Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton and their relationships, but I wanted to know about the institution and where it came from and I couldn't find anything. And after much exhaustive searching, I concluded that there really hadn't been anything written in at least a hundred years. And so I decided that that was a grave oversight because the cabinet is such a visible, powerful institution today, and people should know where it came from. And so I decided I was going to tell that story and I was going to write that book. And then I spent the next eight years hoping that no one would beat me to it, which uh, thankfully they did not. Do you know, just out of curiosity, is there, do you know of anyone who's kind of, uh, you know, you just beat out or if there's other books coming out now, have you, have you set a new trend here on cabinet studies? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I know there are, there's some graduate students who are sort of just starting now that are interested in exploring some different aspects of Washington's administration and, and the cabinet is part of it. But I think they're coming from a little bit more of like a, a social cultural material culture perspective yeah. as opposed to sort of a more traditional political history. So I think it's still, um, it's still sort of on the outs, at least within the Academy. But what I've learned through my day job is that most people outside of the Academy are really fascinated by this work and eager for substantive real history and, and really want to know what actually happened. And so I am grateful that there seems to be a really great audience for this kind of story. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And by the way, your uh, just to let the audience know, um, your advisor, right. Was the, I think it's multiple Pulitzer prize winning yep. historian, right? Alan Taylor. So, uh, you definitely, uh, Alan doesn't write. He's written some political history, I think, but lately he has not been writing much political history. So that must've been a, uh, tough job, maybe not tough, but, a, but an interesting job to convince him. Well, you know, it's interesting because he, his first book was, um, Liberty men and great proprietors. That's and that's right. sort yeah. of about the, you know, old dead white guys. Um, and since then you're right, he has definitely focused more on social culture and, um, social history, you know, material culture and, uh, race and slavery. Right. Um, although his most recent book is on Jefferson. Um, but the amazing, I will say like the incredible thing about Alan is that when I said, this is what I want to write about, he never said no. Um, he never said that that's a bad idea or you shouldn't do it. He asked questions and he, you know, pushed to make sure I was asking a question that would make for a good contribution. Yeah. But, um, and then, you know, like tore the writing apart, but that's what an advisor should do. So, yeah, yeah. um, yeah. So, I mean, he definitely, he was very supportive of the project, especially once we kind of realized that there was this gaping hole in the literature that no one really anticipated. Um, he was very supportive and then, you know, just really pushed me to make it as good as I could. And I'm guessing Lindsay, you started this book before the whole kind of Hamilton craze, right? You started yes. the dissertation, right? So that must've been a, 
a uh, uh, exciting thing, right? Where, you know, you have these cabinet battle songs and, you know, the cabinet suddenly, you know, Jefferson and Hamilton, um, you got the whole nation uh, following this story. And now you get to sort of write some of the history. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's been a great moment. And, and what I love so much about the musical is, I mean, one, it's an extraordinary piece of art, but most people who see it or listen to the music, they understand that it's just that it's art. And right. so students and teachers and readers will ask me, you know, what really happened? What's, what's real and yeah. what's not. And I love that because if, you know, art can bring interest to history, then that is such a gift. And so I think it's been an incredible opportunity. I love when people ask me the Hamilton question about, you know, like what, what it really happened and what uh-huh. do the cabinet battles really look like? And I consider that to be an honor and I'm always happy to answer that question. Well, let's talk a little bit about the cabinet, the first cabinet. Um, So you start out, you know, talking about, and most people, I think if they don't think about Washington first as the, as the president, the first president, uh, they think of Washington as a general, right? And uh, you make the case that Washington's military experience as a general, uh, especially during the American revolution, uh, shaped in many ways, his understanding of this thing called the cabinet, right? And it technically wasn't called the cabinet early on, right? There's nothing in the constitution Mm -hmm. that suggests there's anything called a cabinet. Uh, So Washington becomes president and he uh, has to kind of shape this thing on his own. Um, How does his military experience play into that? Or how does it, how does it um, contribute to his understanding of his uh, advisors from the different departments Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the cabinet, as you said, isn't in the Constitution. In fact, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention explicitly rejected proposals for advisory bodies that looked like the cabinet. Um, And so when Washington came into office and he realized that he did need this sort of support and he convened the first cabinet meeting on November 26th, 1791, so that was two and a half years into his administration, what he knew best was his military leadership experience. And so it's not really surprising that, you know, he drew on the sorts of things that had worked really well for him and what had worked really well were these councils of war because he allowed him to bring together the officers and his aides to comp and get a variety of different opinions and experiences and perspectives he really liked having um, all the different sort of uh, opinions come together and, and battle it out because it allowed him to see where the weaknesses for each argument were and allowed him to gather information. And Washington very rarely came into a council of war or a cabinet meeting, especially later on in the war, with a, a set opinion about what they should do. He preferred to hear from his advisors first and then kind of make a decision slowly. And so um, the, his experience managing these very diverse personalities, using this group to build consensus, to provide political cover for controversial decisions, to, to get advice, that was really helpful for him. And so when he was then faced with domestic crises or, you know, international war or constitutional questions, he went back to that same framework because it had worked really well for him. And so he even used a lot of the same strategies to manage the various people that were working underneath him, including 
sending out questions ahead of time, using those questions for an agenda for the meeting. And then if they didn't agree, he would often ask for written opinions to make sure he heard from everyone, to make sure he had all of the information, and then to sort of make a decision in his own time. So it was very much how he led best and how he went about making decisions best, whether or not the participants agreed was sort of a different question, but that was really the, the system that worked well for him. Yeah. I've been working on a book now for a while on the uh, revolution in New Jersey. Hopefully it'll be done this summer, but, but I, I, you particularly, I think you mentioned this in your book too, but I'm right at the point now where I'm writing some stuff about the, the battle of Monmouth in the summer mm. of 1778. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, I thought about that again, uh, as I watched Washington deal with Charles Lee and all these other advisors, you know, Hamilton, Lafayette, they were sort of all there too, but it's, a, that's one great example of where, um, you know, uh, he's drawing upon expertise. He's listening, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you see that all throughout the campaign. So that, I thought that was an interesting part of your contribution there. Um, when we think of Washington, Lindsay, we think of, um, you know, precedence, right? That's like one of the first things you learn in your civics class or whatever in elementary school, right? Washington set these precedents um, for future presidents, right? To follow. Uh, Again, you mentioned the cabinet uh, in your book, you mentioned the cabinet was very much an organic, right? It developed organically, right? It developed in a very organic way. And what struck me was um, you have this kind of transatlantic angle to this, right? The cabinet and Washington's precedent for establishing a sort of group of advisors that would become the cabinet always seems to have uh, the British cabinet. And you can explain what that is, but the British cabinet sort of always seems to be looming in the background and sort of, sort of somewhat defining how Washington wants to perceive his group of advisors. Maybe you can explain a little bit uh, about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad that you picked up on that because this was one of those themes where when we talk about, you know, how we actually write history, yeah. it was one of the hardest for me because Washington and the secretaries never really wrote down how concerned they were about being compared to the British cabinet. But I just had this like deep sense that that was the case based on how they were comporting themselves and how they were so careful about how they dressed and presented themselves in other aspects of their life. So I'm really glad that that came through, but so the, the British cabinet evolved out of the Privy Council and the Privy Council was the group of advisors that was organized to um, help the king basically manage the government and run the country. And when the Privy Council got too big to be an effective advisory body, you know, when you have a huge group of people, everyone knows what those meetings are like when you have, you know, 25 people who are all trying to talk at once. Basically, the king started pulling off his favorites into a small little room off of the Privy Council chambers. And that small little room was called the king's cabinet. And eventually this group of favorites became known the cabinet as the cabinet council. And then council was dropped and it just became known as the cabinet. 
And Americans knew that this body existed, but it was very secretive. It was very private. There was a sense that, you know, maybe membership was sort of fluid. People didn't really know who was in charge, who was making decisions. And it wasn't um, transparent. There wasn't responsibility. And so Americans were very distrusting of the cabinet. And they really blamed the cabinet for instigating a lot of the conflict that had come out of the revolution for passing the legislation like this stamp back. Act mm-hmm. and the intolerable acts um, that you know really kicked off the the Revolutionary War, and so um, this distrust didn't go away at the end of the war because obviously they had just you know been fighting for eight years, and Washington and the secretaries very much understood that this trust that that this distrust was there, and so when they were in office, they were very attentive to making sure that their interactions didn't look like the British cabinet. And they did so in a couple of ways. First, the big problem with the British cabinet was that it was never clear who was in charge. It was never clear who was responsible for decisions and for government policy. And so they really tried to be clear that Washington was always in charge. Mm -hmm. Hamilton and Jefferson might be advocating for more executive authority, but it wasn't because they wanted the authority. They were advocating for that power on behalf of Washington and the president. And they worked to bolster his ability to make sort of decisive action. And um, we sort of see that come through when there's criticism, no one really seemed to criticize Washington for convening the cabinet, which is rather remarkable given that it was, you know, 10 years after the end of the war. Instead, they criticized specific individuals for how they operated within the cabinet. So they really criticized Hamilton when he appeared to be taking on too much authority. And they compared him to some of the most hated British ministers like Robert Walpole or Lord North. So they didn't criticize the institution or they didn't criticize the president, but they criticized the people who appeared to be growing beyond their station. And that was not okay. So in what ways did Washington then, um, you know, kind of reject the cab, the British cabinet model? Did he do specific things to make sure that it wasn't perceived um, in the British way? Well, there, I mean, there's, there's some things that we can tell that he sort of did that he was attentive to, um, public appearances and then they weren't necessarily specifically cabinet driven. So he was very attentive to presenting himself as a virtuous Republican. And this is a little R Republican. So even though he had one of the fanciest coaches in North America, he made sure that he took walks every afternoon. And this was very symbolic because it sort of demonstrated that he was just like the common man and his boots got muddy too, when he walked in the streets. And this was a uh, symbolic action that his fellow citizens understood. They appreciated the sort of value of the statement that he was making Similarly, when he ordered new clothes for the inauguration, he uh, purchased a American homespun suit. It was very nice homespun, and he had diamond shoe buckles on his shoes just to make sure he had a little bit of finery. But it was American homespun. It wasn't, you know, French silk or British wool. 
So there were things like that, that he did to sort of very much carve himself in as, you know, an American. And then when he went on tours of the States, he did a Northern tour and a Southern tour. He was very careful to always stay in public housing and to pay for it. So he didn't want the image of him sort of imposing himself on private citizens to be in the back of people's minds. That was something that the British monarchs had done either to demonstrate favor or to sort of punish people and make them pay to host these like giant retinues that were, you know, going out on tour. Um, and even just, you know, going on horseback along these roads, they were very dusty. They were often in very poor condition. And so enduring that hardship sort of demonstrated that he was the average person. But what I think is the most telling is that by 1792, most people were referring to this group as the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Madison was talking about it. Um, he said, you know, would send a letter to Jefferson and say, like, did this come up in the cabinet? Right. And Hamilton and Jefferson were talking about their meetings, like cabinet meetings or cabinet notes. And Washington refused to use the word cabinet in his writings until he retired. And then he very quickly said John Adams cabinet. So he obviously understood that this is what people were saying. But I don't know if he just felt like if he didn't use the word, it wouldn't be there and it wouldn't yeah. be a problem or yeah. what. But instead, he called them the gentlemen of my family or the secretaries or just um, the gentlemen. And uh, that was how he handled it. Just a, just a side kind of trivia question here. Am I right to assume, I can't remember if you addressed this in the book or not, but am I right to assume that in the 1790s. So John Adams, for example, you mentioned he, as the vice president, he was not considered part of the cabinet. That's right. So, um, very early on, right after his inauguration, Washington does ask for John Adams written advice on a number of different sort of social etiquette questions, but he never invites Adams to an official cabinet meeting. He does meet with him, you know, sometimes one-on-one, but he never invites him to a cabinet meeting. And he doesn't ever really say why, although I suspect it might have something to do with the fact that Adams' political reputation had sort of taken a hit in the summer of 1789 when he had advocated for a very eloquent and wordy title for the president. And that was sort of an unpopular position. Um, but he never wrote down why, and that kind of established a pattern of presidents generally are not that close to their vice presidents. In fact, you know, Obama and Biden's relationship is more of an aberration than it is the rule. And usually vice presidents don't play a particularly close role in the cabinet. Although it's, although it's, they're technically like, if I'm not, it wasn't Biden or even Pence today, aren't they considered today to be part of the cabinet? Yes, they do usually have a seat at the table um, and are are part of it. But um, typically those relationships are not very close ones. Right. Right. Now, again, we've been talking about this kind of organic nature, right? You know, by Mm -hmm. 1792, we're, you know, at least uh, Mm -hmm. the people in the quote unquote cabinet, right, are calling it a cabinet. Washington may not Mm -hmm. be yet. But um, up until up until, um, say, 1793, the cabinet doesn't meet that often. Maybe, you know, I think if I remember correctly, like less than 10 times or a dozen times right. a year, yeah. they get together. But what happens in 1793 that really uh, sort of solidifies, if you will, this cabinet and makes it a much more regular feature of the Washington administration? Yeah, that's exactly right. They only meet a handful of times in 1792. 
And then in 1793, in February, France declares war on Great Britain. And very quickly, that conflict sort of escalates to include all of their allies and their colonial holdings. And so very quickly, it becomes an international war. And France was still the United States ally from the revolution. And Great Britain was the United States' biggest trade partner. And so Washington and the secretaries immediately realize that they are stuck in an almost impossible position because they cannot afford to go to war. The country was just beginning to recover physically, emotionally, environmentally, economically from the conflict. They don't have an army or navy anyway. So even if they wanted to join, there's, there's no mechanism to do so. Um, but what neutrality is going to look like, how they're going to enforce it, whether or not international powers are going to respect it. Um, there are a lot of legal questions there that are very complicated and a lot of enforcement questions that are very tricky. And so Washington gathered the secretaries in the middle of April to sort of kick off these conversations. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to deal with all of these pieces and how they're going to stay out of the war and, how they're going to figure out neutrality. And basically they spend the next eight months trying to do so. Yeah. And it's complicated by the arrival of citizen Edmund Charles Genet, who was the new French minister who had his own ideas about what the United States should be doing and was sort of flagrantly disregarding Washington's um, proclamation of neutrality and arming privateers, which were um, private ships that sailed under the French mark to attack British ships but he was basically arming them in the port of Philadelphia, which was six blocks from Washington's house. And so, um, <laughs> this was a pretty flagrant, like thumbing his nose at the administration and, and disregarding their rules. Um, and so they also had to figure out what to do with him and, yeah. and how to handle that. And they eventually decided to request his recall from France, which is the first time they had done so. Yeah. And that was a huge step because they weren't sure how that would affect that relationship. Um, so basically they spend the entire year trying to figure out these details in August, they request the recall. They don't get word until early the next year that France has complied, but that's a huge deal because it's kind of France's recognition that the United States has the right to craft its own foreign policy, and it has to be respected by representatives from foreign nations. In August of 1793, they also write out eight rules of neutrality, which basically dictate what citizens have to do to maintain that neutral position. And the following year, Congress codifies those into law and, and that those really govern periods of neutrality up until the Civil War. So it's a monumental year for the administration, for precedents, for the cabinet. Um, but really the big takeaway for Washington is that he... Uh, takes decisive action and determines that the country is going to be neutral and works towards figuring out what that's going to be, which carves out this sphere of influence for the president over diplomatic issues. And people had kind of expected that the president would take the lead in that anyway, but because Washington did take decisive action with the cabinet's assistance, it confirmed that the president was one that was going to really be responsible for diplomacy and foreign affairs. Right. And the cabinet meets something, I think, is 51. Does that sound right? Um, uh, yes, yes. 51 it's... times in 1793. So it's, you know, if you have your your uh, your graph, right, there's like a huge spike. It's a huge spike. And, you know, yeah. often because they didn't meet, they didn't meet every week because at times they... Um, 
in the fall, they actually fled Philadelphia because there was an outbreak of yellow fever. Right. So in certain weeks, they were meeting up to five times per week, sometimes for several hours a day. It was the summer. It was Philadelphia. It was incredibly hot. They didn't have air conditioning. Hamilton and Jefferson already hated each other. So you can imagine this was a pretty intense, colorful environment. I think this is the part of the book, Lindsay, where, you know, someone who knows Philadelphia pretty well and, and, and does the occasional kind of early American tour, this is a Philadelphia. This is the place where like my, my sort of historical imagination was just kicking in because they're meeting right on the second floor of the president's house. If you've ever mm -hmm. been to Philadelphia, right, this is just right across the street from, um, uh, the new, uh, independence hall visitor center. You can, you can see where the house was, uh, and they're on the second floor and tell us a little bit about, cause you do really you do a really nice job here. Tell us about the kind of space right? Um, the spatial dimensions of where the, they're meeting. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, the space is so important, I think, to understanding this environment. So as you said, Washington's private study was on the second floor. It wasn't a particularly big room. It was about 15 by 21 feet. Um, by today's standards, it would have been incredibly crammed with furniture because it had multiple purposes. Um, it had Washington's giant French desk, which was over five feet long, and it had a writing surface on both sides so that both Washington and his secretaries could be writing at the same time. He had three bookcases. He had a globe. He had an iron stove to provide heat in the winter. He had his dressing table there because that's typically where he got ready in the morning and his enslaved manservant would help with his hair and help him shave. Uh, there would have probably been a small table and chairs brought in for the secretaries when they came to meet. So this room was like stuffed with furniture and the five guys that came into this room, they were not particularly small. Right. Um, you know, they were tall. Knox was uh, not as tall, but very portly. So they took up space and they were meeting for several hours. And we know because of the outbreak of yellow fever that the summer was very hot and humid. And so if you think about, you know, I know I get fidgety after about an hour in a meeting. Right. And that's when I'm sitting in a comfortable chair. So imagine you're not sitting in a particularly comfortable chair. There's no air conditioning. You're stuck with people that you don't like and you don't agree with. And there are these notes that Jefferson writes sort of in his, um, in his margins where he says that Hamilton made a jury speech for three quarters of an hour. <laughs> So you can just imagine Hamilton, you know, he's, he was sort of known for his very, um, his elaborate style of talking. He had pretty, um, extravagant hand gestures. So you can imagine him pacing for 45 minutes talking without stopping at someone who hates him in this like hot house. And then you can just imagine the tensions just boiling over. And so I think that's so important. Oh, and then I should say that they, they, the meeting broke up and they came back the next day and he did the same thing. He yeah, spoke yeah. for another 45 minutes. Right. Um, and so you can just imagine Jefferson's head being like about to explode and how frustrating that must've been and the tension you probably yeah. could just cut with the knife. Yeah, talk for six hours. The convention is listless. Right? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Who the F is this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's talk. just, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, he did not um, know when to stop talking. No, that's great. Um, and you know, I think I'm trying to imagine him even as you're talking now, I mean, there's really no room to pace back and forth. I mean, these must not have been really. some meetings. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you can just imagine how, how imposing physically it must have felt like you couldn't escape. And then, I mean, you know, Philadelphia well, but the, at that time, the community was a very small one. And right. so they all lived fairly close to each other. Um, we have records that Hamilton and Jefferson purchased clothes from the same tailor. Yeah. Uh, they socialized at the same places. They knew the same people. And so you can just imagine that they kind of felt like they couldn't get away from each other. Yeah. Yeah. With that in mind, let me, let me uh, ask you uh, about that. Um, it strikes me that, you know, just as the cabinet is beginning to kind of, I don't know, solidify or become something, right? The cabinet starting to become the cabinet, if you mm-hmm. will, in this neutrality crisis of 1793. Uh, this is where some of the growing tensions between Hamilton and Jefferson and other members of the cabinet become the most intense, right? Mm-hmm. And again, we all know that from the from the Hamilton soundtrack, if we don't know the actual history, right? Mm-hmm. How did, how did Washington Washington, you know, you've just laid out beautifully the kind of the, the spatial dimensions here, right? And and that's obviously a part of it. But but how does Washington, as the man kind of presiding over this cabinet, right? How does he how does he handle these these fundamental differences on policy, on ideology, you know, between um, probably his two most important members of the cabinet? Yeah. Well, I think that what's really interesting about Washington and he didn't, um, often write down what he thought about these things. So we kind of have to, um, read into his actions or, or see what other people said about his response. So first of all, he had a very comfortable chair in this room. So he was physically more comfortable than the rest of them. Um, but I get the sense based on his council of war practices and then with the cabinet that he didn't mind the conflict. It didn't bother him. Like he wasn't uncomfortable by seeing people argue. In fact, I think he found it really helpful because it was a way for him to bring together the smartest people he knew and make them basically stress test each other's perspectives and each other's arguments. And so he didn't have to worry about finding the weaknesses in Jefferson's argument because Hamilton was going to do it for him and vice versa. And so I think that he found that sort of combative style of conversation to be incredibly productive. And he at one point said to Jefferson when he's trying to get him to uh, not retire, he said how much he appreciated having the very different opinions in his cabinet because it allowed him to find a middle ground and to know what the other side was saying. And so I think that he found that to be a crucial part of making good decisions. And um, despite, you know, Jefferson's protests and the sort of record that he has left and a lot of our, I think our understanding of this history is a little skewed by what Jefferson wrote down. Washington didn't agree with Hamilton all the time. Right. In fact, he sometimes very vocally agreed with Jefferson, even if it meant sort of going against all of the other secretaries. He almost seemed to like go back and forth between siding with Hamilton and siding with Jefferson. And so I think he was very conscious of trying to find uh, sort of a, a middle ground, a compromise position. And when Jefferson left, I think he was happy to not have as much, you know, sort of Jefferson kind of always whined about the situation and the fact that Hamilton had, you know, Washington's ear more than he did. And so I think Washington was probably happy to be (laughs) rid of that, but he did, I think, miss having that other perspective. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and for those listeners who are maybe not familiar with these debates, right. Again, I'm guessing a lot of you are just because you found your way to this podcast, but, um, you know, go pick up, uh, go listen to Hamilton, the soundtrack, if you haven't, or, or, you know, pick up any kind of general overview of the 1790s uh, to get a feel for, you know, these intense uh, ideological and political differences between the two. And then, and then Lindsay, right. When Jefferson resigns, if I remember correctly, uh, Washington actually tries to convince him to stay longer, which, you know, certainly is not something that you pick up from, you know, the, the from Lin-Manuel Miranda or, or, you know, I guess you would if you read Ron Chernow, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, so Jefferson first started talking about retiring in early 1792 and Washington pleads with him to stay and convinces him to stay until early 1793. And then Jefferson agrees that he can't really leave in the middle of the neutrality crisis. And so Washington almost gets an extra year and a half of service out of him by sort of really pleading with him to stay and saying how much he needed him and his expertise, um, which is not something that most people I think necessarily think about or, or realize, but Washington was okay being told he was wrong and he was okay with, with the battles. And I think to a certain extent that maybe came from sort of like the military background because Hamilton seemed okay with it too. I think because Jefferson came from a more diplomatic place where if you're arguing like that, then that usually means diplomacy has broken down. I think he wasn't, I mean, his personality himself, he was uncomfortable with conflict, but I think he also just wasn't accustomed to that kind of debate. And, you know, I say this kind of with a wink, um, you know, it's a sign of, it's a sign of leadership too. And, and, you know, he's Washington secure enough in himself that, uh, you know, he could listen to people who disagree with them and, and, and grow as a leader as a result of that. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of his greatest strengths was understanding his own shortcomings and what he didn't know and being willing to surround himself with people who are better than him at certain things and listen to them and seek out their input. And it made him better. And, um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the hallmark of good presidential leadership. Well, Lindsay, our time is up, but there's so much more in this book. I just want to sort of alert our listeners. We didn't even have time to get into the way the cabinet in Washington handled the Whiskey Rebellion, Jay's Treaty. You have a chapter on um, just a lot of great stuff in this book. But I really just wanted to kind of get our listeners to kind of, you know, hear some of the central central arguments and perhaps prompt them to go uh, pick up a copy of the book themselves and read through some of this. Last final question. Do you, what's, what's next for Lindsay, Lindsay Travinsky? Do you have another book in mind? Are you working on a project now? Are you willing to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. So I have become convinced that the best way to evaluate presidential leadership is through the cabinet lens. And I think it's really undervalued because uh, it's an almost impossible task to manage a group of opinionated egotistical, arrogant, knowledgeable, experienced people and keep them sort of on the same path and working towards a common goal. And so I've become really fascinated by how different presidents either can succeed with that using different strategies or fail spectacularly. And there are some spectacular failures in American history. And so I'm going to continue looking at the cabinets. I'm going to compare John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's cabinets, which, uh, despite the incredible number of books on Jefferson, most people don't really look at that part of his presidency. And, uh, he actually had one of the best cabinets and John Adams had one 
one of the worst. It was borderline treasonous. And so I think it will make for a fantastic comparison and hopefully, you know, continue to reveal a lot about both the origins of the evolution of the executive branch and the presidency. But, um, you know, I think as we continue to see today, the presidency and how the president handles the cabinet and manages those people around him, or hopefully eventually her, um, is an ongoing present question. And so it will be hopefully very relevant for the present moment as well. Good. Lindsay, how do we find more about you, your work? Do you have a place on the web, uh, Twitter handle? Yes, absolutely. So my website is lindsaychervinsky.com. Uh, I have, you know, all of my work is there. You can find more about the book and other projects. Um, and then I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is LM Chervinsky, and I would be happy to hear from all of you and thrilled to answer questions and, um, you know, just grateful for everyone's interest in the book. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a great conversation and have a great day. You too. you enjoyed our conversation with Lindsay Shervinsky. Uh, she, as I mentioned, is one of our bright young political historians. I'm really excited. I didn't know about her book about the, uh, the comparison between the Adams and Washington cabinet. That's going to be great. Uh, I think a great lens into understanding presidential leadership. Um, but again, I hope you, I hope you, uh, um, got a good glimpse of the way history is kind of done here. We'd often think in this case, the cabinet as something that, you know, maybe was even in the constitution or was kind of established from day one. Uh, but history is often fluid and, you know, it's going to take a while and, and history and, you know, the events uh, intervene and, you know, sometimes these institutions in American political life are shaped uh, in the midst of crises, whether it be the neutrality crisis or, or what we didn't talk about, the Whiskey Rebellion or Jay's Treaty um, or the personalities involved. Uh, you know, so rather than sort of these institutions kind of forming in the heads of our so-called founding fathers put on paper and then executed, and again, there are some institutions like that. Uh, the cabinet, uh, as Lindsay points out, is very much an organically developed uh, kind of idea. So we'll look forward to seeing more of uh, her work down the road, as you know, I think it's fair to say she is our foremost expert on the history of the early cabinet. So it's always good to talk to Lindsay. I hope you are doing well. Uh, again, as I mentioned at the outset, I hope you're staying safe. Hope you're quarantining when appropriate social distancing, keeping six feet apart, um, you know, and let's just hope uh, that this pandemic goes away.
May so we can get back to normal life. In the meantime, we will be here. Uh, as I mentioned, we will be doing episodes all summer long. We have some great guests lined up. Uh, please consider helping us out here. Um, you know, we still have our regular costs to produce this episode. Uh, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, head over to our Patreon page. You can donate as little as a dollar a month, as much as $20 a month, uh, or more. If you'd like, you can also make a one-time gift. So we appreciate your support. And until we meet again, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and Bob Beatty. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. I've been your studio engineer and producer, Casey Lehman, and your host, as always, is John Fia. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.